what Mitchell has just demonstrated, uh, obviously, is that it is entirely possible to raise a family in a local church with a real faith in Jesus Christ and watch them become faithful adults who follow the Lord. The second generation does not have to be weaker than the first. It's not necessary. It's one of the things that we converse about and talk about uh, amongst the researchers and those that are concerned. The second generation, however, can be as strong as the first, and the third as strong as the, th- uh, the second. The second thing is, is that Mitchell has just uh, told us, really in many ways, as you're turning to Luke 22, how it's entirely possible to navigate spiritual warfare victoriously. It is at the point where Mitchell and this young man were that many find themselves defeated. Uh, and he brought up an excellent, excellent point that he had more problem with the illness than the young man did. That's oftentimes exactly how it happens. Those who have problem with evil and suffering in the world are usually the most comfortable people in the world. And Satan takes their eyes off the blessings and puts them on the sorrows of the world. While those enduring an awful lot of the suffering, praise God and lift Him up. If you doubt that, you need to go south of the equator sometime uh, to where people on a daily basis are in danger of losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You do that, you'll get past some of the questions, because they certainly have. And that leads me to Luke chapter 22. This morning, we're talking about next level warfare, stepping up. And I want you to look at Luke 22 and Romans 8 and 1 Peter chapter 5. You remember, put your finger or a marker in those places. We'll look at those briefly in just a moment. But this does remind me, of course, of the professor who came into class the very first day with the tennis ball and put it on his desk. And students wondered what it was there for for the first few classes until one day a student fell asleep and he picked it up and with the accuracy of a Nolan Ryan, flung it and nailed the boy in the forehead. And he woke up. Well, they paid attention the next class period when instead of a tennis ball, he came and put a bowling ball on the desk. You know, it's just like us not to pay attention to the possibility of pain until we have experienced some pain. And and that's uh, a bit of what we find here. I I need to let you know that as we attempt to penetrate our community with the gospel of Christ, as we seek to build great commissionaries and take seriously God's Word and the will of Christ and His mission in this world, our church... And we as individuals will attract demonic attention. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning justifying my belief in the demonic. Uh, It's in the Bible. Jesus believed in it. That's enough for me. And I'm going to assume that. Uh, One day it may be appropriate to uh, argue for that. But we are in, as C.S. Lewis said, enemy-occupied territory. And what we do in this day is that we carry out Lewis said, a program of sabotage. In the fall, Adam and Eve handed over legal right to the earth, to the enemy. Jesus came and purchased, redeemed the earth and all in it, purchased legal right to it at the cross and in His resurrection. 
and persistently and incrementally through the centuries, he's been penetrating the earth and one day will return and claim possession. It's much like November when the president will be elected and then January will take office. Jesus was elected at the resurrection and one day is returning to take office and to take possession of this earth. And so our vision, our outreach, and even our environment and our world will uh, necessitate growth in the area of spiritual warfare. Vance Havner said, preaching one time, that the evil that he saw in his day was a new kind of demonism. Not the old run-of-the-mill evil that was somewhat ordinary and to be expected by the, from the children of Adam and Eve. It was a new kind of demonism. Vance Havner died in 1988, and he made that statement in 1977. Almost 40 years ago. Our environment is such that I'm sensing an exponential growth in demonic activity. In addition to that, we are carrying on a campaign of sabotage and addressing it. And that mixture of factors will attract demonic attention. Scripture, then, has an awful lot to say about this, especially about Satan and his demons. It labels Satan as a murderer in John 8, 44. So, if you find yourself angry enough to pop someone's head off, or you think of harm coming to someone, you might be subject to demonic influence. Not possession if you're a Christian, of course. Christ possessed you when He saved you. Then He's also a liar, John 8, 44. And so when you think of distorting what someone has said, which is rampant in some corners of our country, that might be an indicator of demonic influence. It says He's a deceiver. It also says He's an angel of light and uses it in the context of uh, false preachers preaching uh, a message that competes with the Christian message and using Christian vocabulary. And so Satan himself in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen appears as an angel of light. He's the smoothest and most handsome communicator in the history of human communication. And he's very, very convincing. He's a prince of the power of the air, and this is his territory. 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the devil. He's a schemer. And so if we, try to, if we think of how to come at people from an angle without actually telling the truth and just saying enough to keep ourselves uh, clear with a good reputation but not being entirely forthright, if we scheme in that way, if we manipulate and attempt, we may be under the influence of the schemer. He's a hinderer of the gospel. And this is one of the most clear difficulties in our day. In a day when people, I believe, are more wide open to the gospel than I've ever seen them in my life, I've never seen Christians more frightened of sharing the gospel. Satan hinders that, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. And then he's the accuser of the brethren. Let me ask you, have you ever had terrible thoughts in your prayers about yourself or about others? Satan's interfering with that. Have you ever had ugly thoughts in worship about what you've heard or what we've sung or about someone that's in attendance? Well, God's not doing that. Where's that coming from? 
And so Scripture has an awful lot of labels, and I've not exhausted all of these. These might be indicative of satanic forces. Now, ruin in life, then, often stems from ignorance or neglect of spiritual warfare. Victory stems from forceful and intentional engagement in spiritual warfare. And Jesus addresses this in Luke 22, beginning in verse number 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. There are a couple of things here that will help us to live aware of these things. First, live aware of spiritual adversity. Jesus makes it clear here. Condoleezza Rice, who was National Security Advisor in 2001 at the attacks uh, at 9-11 on the World Trade Center in, in Pennsylvania, was testifying before the 9-11 Commission, and she stated these words, For more than 20 years, the terrorist threat gathered, and America's response across several administrations was insufficient. Historically, democratic societies have been slow to react to gathering threats, tending instead to wait to confront threats until they're too dangerous to ignore, or until it's too late. The terrorists, she said, were at war with us, but we were not yet at war with them. That's oftentimes the case not only for democracies. That is often the case for Christian people and churches. You and I cannot afford to wait until defeat has visited us before we prepare and ramp up for engagement in spiritual warfare. Listen to me, please. The demonic kingdom is at war with us. It behooves us to engage and be at war with the demonic kingdom in a biblically defined way. And Jesus announces this to Peter in verse 31. He informs him of the adversity that is going to come his way. He wants him to live aware of spiritual adversity. He talks about the urgency of adversity, the mystery of adversity, the misery of adversity. Look, look at the urgency that's implied here in, in even the name that he calls Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Now this is the pre-conversion name for Peter. Jesus is pointing back to Peter's pre-conversion vulnerable days before he had the power of God in his life and was given authority in spiritual matters. And so he's emphasizing Peter's vulnerable humanity. In other words, there is an urgency here when he uses the name Simon, Simon. Now, it's very clear immediately that Peter was thinking merely in human terms in verse 33. I mean, leave it to Peter, start arguing with Jesus. He says, in response to this, Well, Lord, I'm ready to go to death with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, well, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. There's an urgency here. It is urgent to get low on your face before God. With the prayer life, the vigorous faith, 
and the spiritual qualities necessary to engage and to win in spiritual warfare. In other words, the way up is down. Adrian Rogers used to say, an awful lot of kneeling keeps us in good standing before God. There's the urgency. Then there's the mystery. Look what Jesus said in verse 31. Simon, Simon, indeed, or emphatically, Satan has asked for you. Now, is that not an interesting thing? Satan has asked for you. Well, who in the world was Satan asking? Satan was asking for access to the life of Peter. Well, who was he asking? Well, if you're familiar at all with the book of Job, you know exactly the answer to that question. Satan appeared, apparently, like he did with Job, before God, asking for the opportunity to sift, perhaps not his word, but Jesus' word, to sift Peter like wheat, to cut through him in every conceivable way. This is a mystery. I don't completely understand it. But God allowed Satan to do that very thing to Job, and he allowed that to happen to Peter. Now, Satan is not, all, is not very smart. For some reason, he still holds out hope that God will allow something to happen that does not go to God's glory and the good of his people. He hoped that with Job, of course. But how many people, over three or four thousand years since Job lived, have been helped by the book of Job? I mean, Satan launched an assault against Job that I'm sure today he regrets. He's probably not very happy with the assault he launched to get Job. Because nearly every Sunday, someplace in the world, and multiple times in multiple places in the world, Job is mentioned and God's people and others find encouragement in Job. So there's the mystery of the adversity. Then there's the misery of adversity. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Ancient wheat, you'd have to sift through it, put it through an instrument in order to remove the chaff and uh, foreign bodies from it so that it would be pure wheat ready to be ground. And if wheat had feelings in a physical body as a human body, I'm sure it would be a very difficult and painful experience. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen to you. And Peter didn't put it all together immediately, but Jesus knew precisely what would happen beginning in verse number 56. Look a few verses down to verse 56. And here is Satan approaching Peter and going after him. And look who's involved. And look what they say. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, Peter that is, looked intently at him. And so you can just imagine, Peter's a bit uncomfortable here. This girl starts looking at him. Has anyone ever just stared at you? Well, that's what happened to Peter. And she's looking at Peter, then she surprises him. He shouldn't have been surprised because Jesus told him something like this would happen. But then she surprises him by moving her look from him to looking to the crowd and making an announcement. Well, this man was also with him, she says. But he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, I mean, Peter thought he was through with this. But after a little while, another saw him and said, well, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And it goes on. Then after about an hour, you know, Peter's hoping this will go away. After about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed. 
And so he's insistent. Peter's been weakened by these first two assaults. And then there's a confident assertion. Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. And the other gospel authors say they start making fun of his accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. This is how Satan addressed Peter and sought to undermine his integrity and his faith and faithfulness before God. He used people of varying ages. He used men and women. He used the public and the private. Everything at his disposal he attempted to use in an effort to undermine Peter's faith and his faithfulness. And Peter, in verse 59, went out and wept bitterly. Satan and his host are acting aggressively, strategically, and effectively. And victory begins whenever we become alert to these truths. In other words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Satan hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. And if history is any indication, Satan has been very effective and has every reason to be confident that he will undermine someone before the day is out. We need to be alert to these things. I, Paul talked about this in relationship to forgiveness. They had a young man in the church that sinned sexually and grossly, and they had to, he was very arrogant about it. They had to break fellowship with him, but he repented and got right with God, and Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 11. And he says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I forgive. For indeed, I, if I... Uh, for if I indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. I remember when Sherry Michelle and I were married in our early marriage and in our first pastorate or two, we would hold a couple of revivals or events each year that would focus on calling God's people back to Him or reaching out into the community, uh, either in a crusade or a revival meeting. And I'll never forget, it dawned on us at the same time. But in North Carolina, right before one meeting, the week before, she and I were upset and bothered and just annoyed with each other. And I didn't stop long enough to figure out, why am I annoyed with her? I mean, can you believe anybody would ever be annoyed at her? Can you believe anybody would be annoyed at me? <laughs> and we were. And we had some sharp words with one another in the living room. And at the same time, it dawned on both of us. Satan knows this is the week before revival. We've announced it and promoted it all over the earth. He should know. And we're terribly annoyed with each other. And it doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. I mean, she's beautiful and lovely. I'm beautiful, handsome, and lovely. And, and, and there really wasn't... I've been making smart remarks for that for two and a half years, and finally somebody agrees with me. But uh, the, the, there, there was no outstanding issue. There was nothing... By, but we were simply annoyed. And it finally dawned on us that Satan was interfering, or most likely someone from the demonic kingdom was interfering with our revival preparation 
and wanted to put us down before we ever got to that week to hinder our prayers and our holiness, our love and our zeal and trust in the Lord. And that's precisely what was happening in that day. So Satan will do all he can to create spiritual adversity. Victory begins when we acknowledge that and are aware. But that's not all that Jesus says. Not only live aware of spiritual adversity, but second, live aware of promised victory. And Jesus anticipated victory in verse 32. It's precisely what He did. Look what He says. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to Me, strengthen your brethren. There are several ways to describe this victory. It's emphatic. Here in the Greek text, you can't tell in the English, but in the Greek text, the positioning of the word I is first in the sentence, which in the Greek text makes it emphatic. I have prayed for you. Satan asked for Peter, and Jesus interfered with that request and pleaded with the Father for Peter. He does that in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, where he even prays about this, these issues. Satan asked, and Jesus did too. Jesus is in the battle with you, and the battle's outcome depends in the largest measure on Him. And He's okay. He is victorious. And your task then is to take your little red wagon and latch it to His rising star and make sure you're close with Him. And, and Jesus approached then worked for 11 of the 12 disciples. It did not for Judas because he didn't implement what Christ said. So it's emphatic, but then the victory is personal. Now look what he says here in verse 31. Simon, Simon, uh, Satan has asked for you. You can't tell in the English, but that's plural. And then he shifts to the singular in verse 32. So let me read it as it's stated here in the Greek text. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you all, that he may sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, singular, that your faith, singular, should not fail. And when you, Peter, have returned to me, strengthen, you, Peter, strengthen your brethren. And so Jesus is pointing out Simon as the source of victory. Oftentimes, it just takes one person to be victor victorious in spiritual warfare to encourage all the others. It's a seasoned victory as well. Look what he said. I pray that your faith shall not fail, and when you have returned to me, implying that he'll need to return to him, strengthen your brethren. Jesus, uh, Peter came back to Jesus wiser and more insightful about these issues than before he suffered. And we find that, in fact, in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter. Wise enough, insightful, and inspired, obviously enough, to write, First and second Peter. Now, look, look what he says here. He says, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you. Now, I don't suppose that most of you have any experience with wheat or with flour, its product. But have you ever sifted wheat or flour? I, I've watched my mother and grandmother sift flour. And oftentimes there are foreign bodies in it. Uh, there may be some leftover chaff from it. There may be, well, frankly, who knows what in it. That's why it needs sifting. And after the process of sifting, the flour is better and improved. It's not worse. It's better. I think 
that Jesus is interpreting Satan's request for Peter here. I think probably what Satan requested was the opportunity to afflict Peter and to test him. And the way Jesus heard it and understood, knowing the future, is that that testing and that misery Satan would attempt to uh, hoist onto Peter would actually, in fact, sift him or improve him, is what would happen. And so this word sift here is a positive term. I don't believe it's Satan's term. I believe it's Jesus' term that he places on this whole experience of of Peter's denial of Christ. And he actually says, Peter, this is not for your fall. It's going to hurt. It's miserable. But I'm going to use it to sift you and improve you and make you a better follower of mine. Listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus can rearrange misery for His glory and our good. He's entirely capable of doing that. And that's why I want you to turn with me over to Romans 8, 28. In our day, increasingly as we move forward, we really need to be a church family that has memorized this text. And I want you to look at, look at it with me real carefully here. Romans eight twenty eight. Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that in all things, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Several myths about this. One, it does not say all things are good. Because not all things are good. It says all things work together for good. There's a good outcome, although there may not be a good source. And it doesn't say this happens for everyone. It says, those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Those who are saved and walk with Jesus. There are some things that happen in the life of Christians that aren't following the Lord and the lost world that do not work out for good. All things, however, work together for good, even if they have an awful source. They have a good outcome, but only to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We hear so often that everything happens for a reason. Yeah, you're boneheaded and you make stupid decisions is one reason. It's not necessarily true that God is involved in that. But He is, He is, if you love God and are called according to His purpose. Now I want you to read this again. Look with me in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good. Now, would that include beautiful things? Do beautiful things work together for good? Do holy things, holy events, experiences, do they work together for good? Yes, of course they do. This means yes. This means no. Okay. Uh, So beautiful things and holy things and... Uh, Pure things. Do pure things work together for good? Okay, well what if we just limited this word here, this phrase here, all things, to what is beautiful, good, and holy? Would we have explored and exhausted the meaning of this text? No. What, What do we have to include here? All things. So let me ask you this. Let's read it this way. Can we say, we know that evil things work together for good? Would that be included here? Can can we say that impure things work together for good? Can can we say miserable things work together for 
good. Now, now not for everyone, and not everything is good. The source may be miserable, but the outcome mighty. The, The source may be full of vehemence and viciousness, but the outcome victorious and Christ exalting. Can we say that? All things work together for good. But to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, and at the end of this message in our invitation, we're going to call you and urge you to come give your all things to Him so God will work them together for good. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Jesus can solve any problem. And the tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing He cannot do. Everything in life, watch this, listen, everything in life is an advantage for Jesus Christ, no matter what it is. If it is within the circumference of all things, everything is an advantage for Him. And it can be for the people of God, to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Everything in the hands of Jesus Christ can speed the person who loves God and is called according to His purpose on in holiness, purity, ministry, mission, service, and glory to Jesus Christ. Nothing is excluded from His Lordship. So it's a seasoned victory. But then it's a real victory as well. Well, was Jesus true and real? Yes. We see victory in Peter's subsequent life. We, we see victory in Peter's gospel leadership in Acts chapter 2. He fails here in the text before a little Jewish girl and a couple of uh, rough men, but then he stands before thousands and thousands on the day of Pentecost and preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God, and 3,000 are saved, and a great church is born that day. And some scholars estimate it rose to 25,000 in Jerusalem. So we see Indeed, Peter strengthened his brethren and returned to the Lord in gospel leadership. In missionary service as well, he communicated the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and validated that ministry, one of the most important events in the history of missionary service. And we live in the trajectory of that. And then in his literature, he wrote first, and Second Peter, which I'll need you to turn to First Peter 5 in just a moment. And, and, and Peter, of course, then wrote of spiritual Warfare in 1 Peter chapter 5. Friends, we are as vulnerable as Peter, but we can be as victorious. Peter's master and ours can change vulnerability into victory. And Peter writes of this in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And this, by the way, is not intimidating literature. These are not obscure, mysterious words. You may struggle to read the book of Revelation, There should be no struggle with this here at all. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse number 6. Peter writes specifically about spiritual warfare. In the middle of this text, he speaks of Satan. He says, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are the plains of the Serengeti, and Satan roars like a lion knowing that you and I are on the menu. What do we do? Well, he says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Those who put themselves before God in a spirit of complete dependence are those who are going to win. Those who are overconfident and neglect these issues are going to lose every time. 
Then he says in verse 7, casting all your care upon him. Those who've learned the discipline of casting their cares upon the Lord and giving him their anxieties and worries and fears will be people who win. Those who carry themselves and do not trust the Lord enough to give them to him will lose every time. Then it says, be sober and vigilant. Those who are alert to these realities can win. Those who are careless and thoughtless about them, and to take off on Peter's term, drunk with overconfidence or drunk with blindness to these issues, will lose. Verse 9, resist him, steadfast in the faith. Those who are aware of the need to resist him can win. Those who are thoughtless about this will lose. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, but may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Four words that mean the same thing, and that is make you stand firm after you have suffered for a while. Those who persevere can win, but those who give up lose and lose always. This is Peter's counsel when it comes to spiritual warfare. And here's the point. Jesus said, Peter, when you've returned to me, as he did in John 21, strengthen your brethren and friends. He just did. There is victory in the way of Christ. So there is no reason, no need, no excuse for defeat. The Hudson River in 2009 was quite an active place for incidents with uh, airlines and aircraft. You are familiar, of course, with Scully Scullenberger, who landed the United Airlines flight onto the Hudson River, and because of his skill and dexterity and alertness, all 115 passengers on that flight survived. That was in January 2009. In August 2009, however, there was an air traffic controller who was distracted, and his other fellow air traffic controllers got his attention when an airplane and a tour helicopter were roaming over the Hudson River. They got his attention, and he began to communicate with these aircraft, but only four seconds later, they collided with one another. And all nine people in each of those two aircraft were lost. That air traffic controller was distracted, and he was distracted by a conversation. He was distracted in a conversation with a female friend, another air traffic controller, at another airport in the area. And he was distracted by a conversation with a female friend at another airport, joking about roadkill near the airport. And as a result, nine lost their lives. He wasn't paying attention. You are in the tower. People depend on you. Pay attention and begin to view life, the totality of it, not only as material and physical, but trust what God's Word says about the spirit world and how actively engaged it is with your defeat and that of your children and your family and your marriage and your church. Pay careful, careful attention to it all. Let's not be reckless. Let's not be careful. Now, I need to tell you that in this time that we're entering into now in our worship, our invitation, satanic forces are especially active, seeking to distract and convince people 
not to give themselves to Christ. You see, in just a moment, what we'll do is that we'll begin to sing a song and the Holy Spirit will move on your heart to come seek some help from one of our staff members. They'll be standing here at the front. And the Holy Spirit is moving you to trust Christ's death and resurrection as the only hope for your salvation, to put everything else behind you and reject it that keeps you from Christ at least, and to come to Him and trust His promises to forgive you and to make you one of His own. That's precisely what's going to happen. And it's going to break loose the moment we stand and begin to sing. And it does every time. And it does every Sunday. Every time. And here's what some of the things you'll think. You'll think, well, if I walk forward, I will be embarrassed. What will they think of me? Well, let me just tell you, we'll be happy for you. But that's not what the enemy will tell you. Not only that, but the enemy will tell you, well, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And that there's no need to feel a sense of urgency. Wait a minute. We've just unveiled the Word of God. And God has something different to say. And the Holy Spirit has testified to its truth in your heart today. He'll say a multitude of uh, many other things. He'll say, you're a good person. And, and these people are taking this cross and resurrection and devil thing too seriously. In fact, old Dana Carvey, Saturday Night Live images may roll through your mind is what may happen. Um, he'll say a variety of, uh, of other things. Um, they just want your money is all they want. Well, we've dispelled that notion many times publicly in the congregation, especially with our guests. In other words, anything the enemy can use to keep you from doing the will of God, he will forcefully, aggressively, and I hope not effectively, Seek to keep you where you are instead of seeking the help that you need. He'll do that to those who need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. Those that need to follow Christ in baptism. Those that need some other help, that need to make a decision. And my encouragement to you today is, you are in the tower. People depend on you. Pay attention and do the necessary spiritual warfare now. And the best thing to do is just simply obey God with everything you've got. Stand with me, please, and we're going to start that right now. Father, we praise you that in Jesus Christ we can be more than overcomers and that victory, ultimate victory, is decided. Victories in this life, however, are a bit more contingent. And I want to ask that you will help us to follow the strength that Peter has given us in 1 Peter 5. Please teach us and help us to move forward with this and prepare us better as a people to be the people of God in this location, seeking to magnify Christ by reaching all the peoples of the area and building them into people that are on mission with Jesus Christ. Would you move that forward in this time and help friends to listen to you more than they listen to alternative voices now? Would you do that? Now again, let me repeat what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song. Our staff will be here in the front to help you with any spiritual decision that you need. And as we sing, we're going to encourage you to come. I want to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Blessed God, thank you again for hearing us. And I pray that in scores of lives today, you will get victory, and that Jesus' name will be praised and exalted. In His name, 